chapter 12 as the sermon text, Acts chapter 12, though we'll stop at verse 24. So one of those times that perhaps uh, the chapter headings are a bit misleading. There's really more of a natural break. Just one verse before chapter 13, chapter 12, verses 1 through 24, then hear God's word. Now, about that time, Herod, the king, stretched out his hand to to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now, it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now, behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him and a light shone in the prison and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So she said, so they said, it is his angel. Now, Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go, tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea or Caesarea and stayed there. Uh, Now, Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. But they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aid, their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of God and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. And let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you once more for your word. We thank you for the testimony of Luke and of the apostles and the early church. And we ask you, dear Lord, that you would 
Impress upon us now through the preaching these same truths which so impressed and took hold of them and enabled them by, by uh, your power to, to turn the world upside down. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin by uh, apologizing for just a very small error in the last sermon concerning the Hellenists spoken of in 1120. Uh, uh, it, it says in 1120, some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus. Uh, and and uh, my confusion was apparent. And I just want to try to resolve that here if I can. I'm afraid I was not helped by the commentaries who are somewhat confused themselves or at least unclear about who this group was. At any rate, two things are clear. One is that I was mistaken when I said that Stephen had formerly preached to the Hellenists, an an error that I immediately caught, but was unable to resolve at the time, an error partly explained by the reference to that group in chapter 6, the Hellenists who were being ignored in the daily distribution, verse 1 of chapter 6. So the Hellenists were part of the Stephen narrative, but they were not the group that Stephen preached to. Uh, The group that he preached to are called in verse 9 of chapter 6, the freedmen. Uh, definitely not the Hellenists. I realized later, it took me some time, uh, I I knew I had read about a man preaching to them, but I had it all confused in my mind. It was actually Saul in Jerusalem in chapter 9, verse 29. We read in in those verses, or in that verse, that he preached to the Hellenists in Jerusalem. But that leaves open the question as to who they were. Were they uh, Greek-speaking Jews, as some say? Were they simply Greek Gentiles? Uh, I confess it's unclear in Antioch. What is clear that this is back in chapter 12, uh, those whom he refers to in 1120. What is clear is that the church in Antioch did indeed become the first mixed church of Jew and Gentile. And certainly that appears to be why Luke was interested to tell us about it, as well as why he framed the issue as he did in verse 19, that some went about preaching Jesus to Jews only, but there were some who preached in Antioch to Hellenists. Again, who they were, not entirely clear, but, uh, but it has something to do with the fact that there were, there were now Gentiles who were coming into the church in Antioch. And, and that is certainly clear from later reports. Antioch was uh, the base of the Gentile mission. But having cleared that up, at least uh, for my own sake and my own embarrassment, let me uh, let me now turn to what Luke tells us in chapter 12 and just follow uh, the the outline of events and uh, and and say at the outset that this is something of a surprising sermon. Uh, This is something that uh, I I don't think that the title helps uh, helps you have any idea what I'm about to say. Uh, But uh, but as I began to think about this. This uh, fresh persecution that breaks out in Jerusalem and what what the effect of this new narrative is telling us, what it contributes to the overall picture, uh, what it yielded in the end was a surprising sermon. It yielded a sermon on the subject of tyranny and how the church is to respond to tyranny. Some of you may remember that in 2020, I preached a sermon on Romans 13 and the disposition of the Christian to the civil magistrate. And I had said at the time Uh, If you would like, if there's enough interest, I'll preach a second sermon on the question of tyranny, how the Christian is to respond to tyranny. Well, that sermon never happened, and it it occurs to me in God's providence, this is at last the follow-up to that that sermon. 
Here is a sermon on tyranny. Let me confess to you all that, that these things make me a little nervous. These are controversial subjects. These are subjects about which Christians have differed through the century. Just think about how the church struggled uh, over the issues uh, that faced her just in 2020. Very minor in comparison to what the church was facing in the first century and what the church is facing today in other countries. This is a controversial subject. I, I hope it isn't a controversial s- sermon. I hope that uh, you will say this is merely the exposition of Scripture. Well, here's what we see. Fresh persecution breaks out in Jerusalem. That's the first thing. Chapter 12, verse 1. Herod was harassing people in Jerusalem. That wasn't the scene in chapter 11. Chapter 11, the scene was, was Antioch. But here we return to Jerusalem. Although we did, we did see as well that, uh, that Paul and Barnabas had also returned to Jerusalem at the end of chapter 11. In case we had forgotten, in case we had forgotten, all but the apostles were scattered from Jerusalem. Chapter 8, verse 2. Well, that isn't right. Well, somewhere in chapter 8, it says, uh, it's chapter 8, verse 1. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. They were all scattered uh, throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Uh, And we read so much of what happened as they were spread abroad. And that evangelistic campaign really brings us up to this moment. And it's as though Luke is saying, well, now let's return to Jerusalem and see what was happening there to the apostles who were left. Well, for a time, uh, they enjoyed relative peace. Others were scattered abroad, but they were allowed to go on. But that situation, as we see here, was not to last. Even they were to experience persecution along with the others. Of course, we know they already had. In chapter 4, we read uh, earlier in the service, Peter and John are in prison for preaching Christ. And then in chapter 5, which we did not read, we find a similar situation where the apostles are imprisoned again. In both cases, we find they don't suffer for long. There seems to be at that early hour a degree of reluctance on the part of the Jews to deal with them too severely. They first tell them not to preach, and and, and along with that, they threaten them, chapter 4, something they ignore. And then in the second episode, uh, they're a little more severe, though not that severe relative to what they begin to experience here in chapter 12. The warning is issued along with the beating. So you had threats in chapter 4, now you have a beating in chapter, chapter 5, but they still release them. But now we see uh, that the situation really begins to escalate in chapter 12. Two things stand out uh, from this initial situation. So this is we're still considering the background of chapter 12, what the apostles experience in Jerusalem leading up to this. The first is we read in chapter 5, verse 41, the end of the second episode, that they rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. It's one of the more remarkable things that we see. But the other thing that we see already beginning to form uh, and, and, and I think uh, being clearly emphasized by Luke is the attitude of the apostles towards tyrants, their attitude toward tyranny. Now, one of the things that I would notice is that the Bible is full of this. 
it is uh, full of helpful teaching on the subject of how the Christian is to respond to this dilemma of tyranny. And I am surprised how Christians today, and I confess at times that I have been given to this or guilty of this, seem to give such an imbalanced picture as though obeying tyrants is what Peter or Paul had in mind in Romans 13 or 1 Peter 2 or 1 Timothy 2. Well, realize that those same two men, Peter and Paul, are the men that we read in the face of tyranny, defying the tyrants in Acts chapters 4 and 5. And, 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 well, saying things like this, chapter 4, verse 19, I've already read this, but he says, whether... It is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. They were being commanded to do something, and their response was one of outright defiance and a willingness to suffer at the hands of these men. 529, something even more strongly uh, put. Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. This is something if you study the history of the Protestant church, you'll see our the Protestant heritage is full of such a disposition. One of the things that I found in in the volume of sermons that Martin Lloyd-Jones preached on on Romans chapter 13, he had a healthy section uh, given to the question of tyranny. Not only Peter and John, but going back to chapter four, we read the church herself was praying like this. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. In other words, Lord, give them the spirit to defy the tyrants who would seek to silence them. Now, I remember the famous saying, and I I can't tell you who said it. I'm sure any number of you can tell me after the service. Don't shout it out during the sermon, please. But you can tell me afterwards the saying And perhaps you disagree with it, but I I agree with it. Disobedience to tyrants is obedience to God. That's the spirit of the apostles here. That's the spirit of the early church. That's the spirit of the Protestant fathers. This is a point we'll return to. The whole question as to what constitutes tyranny, for instance, and how the church is to respond, whether Christians owe obedience to tyrants. So often the the answer which is given is yes, but I say that's far too one-sided. Though there's some truth to this, some truth to this. And in some sense, it depends on your definition of what a tyrant is. And I plan uh, using Acts chapter 12 to define what a tyrant is. But with all that in the background, you see, I'm only telling you what was true already. We see how things were now beginning to escalate for those left in Jerusalem The agent here was no more the rulers of the Jews as before, but it was Herod Agrippa, not to be confused with his uncle, Herod Antipas, with whom John and Jesus had to deal. Herod Agrippa was known uh, for his desire to win the favor of the Jews and the policy uh, now of the apostles in in the Jerusalem church of blessing the Gentile mission was a source of consternation for the Jews in Jerusalem, so they lost favor. And now uh, they lost the apostles lost favor with the Jews in Jerusalem. And this provided a suitable opportunity for Herod to persecute the leaders of the church in order to placate the Jews. We read in verse two that it was something that pleased them. That's why he did it. And what he did here, you see, it wasn't a threat. It wasn't a warning. It wasn't a beating. It was it was murder. 
He killed James and then he imprisoned Peter with the obvious expectation that Peter would be next. Peter, along with James, was about to be martyred. And so as the next point, we see the first apostle is martyred. That's what we have in Acts chapter 12, verse 1. We're reminded of what Jesus said to the uh, two brothers, James and John, Mark chapter 10, uh, verses 38 and 39. He says, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink of the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we're able. You remember, they said they had just asked, grant that we may be able to sit at your right hand and on your left in glory. And that's when he responds like that. And then and then he says this in verse thirty nine, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink and will be and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized that he said to James and to John. Here we see that those words very early on become true of James. James is baptized with the baptism with which Jesus was baptized. He was put to death by the hands of Herod, though it was another Herod. Strange uh, in God's providence uh, that James was killed and John is exiled. At any rate, let us see this as a fulfillment of prophecy. Our Lord had told his disciples, these apostles, that as they treated me, so they will treat you. And we are, in light of that teaching in the Gospels, we are surprised, frankly, to see it took so long that one of the apostles should be martyred. Or that the first martyr in the book of Acts in the early church was not an apostle, but it was Stephen, one who had not walked along with Jesus. Another remarkable providence. Nevertheless, we see here the beginning of a trend, something that would not stop with James, the apostle. The apostles, too, would witness the other apostles, I mean, for Christ with their blood. You remember Saul's commission, not not merely that he was to preach to the Gentiles, but also I will show him how much he will suffer for my name. Another thing that we see here with respect uh, to uh, James martyrdom is how the kingdom of God is established in this world. Remember, along with the Gospels, the book of Acts is, is about the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't just preach the kingdom of God. He brought the kingdom of God. And how is it that the kingdom of God comes into this world? And how is it that the kingdom of God proceeds in this world? Well, here's the truth that we see in Acts as we see in the Gospels. Not in the way of other kingdoms. This kingdom is not built. This kingdom is not established. This kingdom does not prosper as the other kingdoms of this world do. How clear Jesus made this to Pilate. Oh, he said he could send a whole legion, a whole army of angels to establish his kingdom if he wanted. But wonder of wonders, the Lord Jesus chose to establish his kingdom through sufferings. Through the cross. And those sufferings we discover, and he made it perfectly clear in the Gospels, did not end with himself. For the cross which he bore is then placed on the shoulders of his followers. James, along with Jesus, was building the kingdom of God. That's the great mystery, but that's the truth of the Gospel. That it takes the eyes of faith to see. Thomas Watson, I told the men of the men's breakfast, get ready for a lot of Thomas Watson quotes. Well, here's here's the first of many. The glory of Christ's kingdom does not stand in worldly pomp and grandeur as other kings, but it is seen in the cheerful suffering 
of his people. And so much of the New Testament reflects this reality. Along with the history of the church, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Satan, the rulers of the world, think they're stamping out Christianity, but what they're really doing is spurring on the fire and the flame. How often we find in the book of Acts or at the cross of Christ or in the history of the church uh, in the face of seeming defeat, the church presses forward and advances. And this is a key thought for ourselves as we think of what God is doing in our own day and how the kingdom will advance in the 21st century. Do not think it will be without suffering. For that is the way of the kingdom of God. But the last thing that we see is the sword used wrongly. Herod was a tyrant. God placed the sword in his hand. He was a minister of God. That's what Romans chapter 13 uh, tells, tells us. As God put this book in my hand and said, you minister this to the people. So he places the sword in the hand of, of rulers. And he says, you minister in my name. But that isn't what Herod did. He used the sword wrongly, just as a man who preaches the word of God for his own glory in order to oppose God, preaches the word of God wrongly. He used the sword not to establish justice, not to punish the evildoer, but he used it to kill James. He used it to imprison Peter. He used it to threaten and discourage and terrify the early church. Again, let us be clear, the sword, the very sword that God had placed in his hand. I think we have a very good definition here of what a tyrant is. You see, you have to know what a tyrant is. You can't just say, this man is a tyrant because I didn't vote for him, because I don't like him. No, it doesn't work like that. It isn't that easy. Uh, a man is a tyrant when he uses his power to oppose God. When he uses his power to set himself against God. And especially when he uses his power uh, to threaten and to discourage and even to kill God's people. When he opposes the visible church. You see that has happened all through history. You have kings who are uh, and rulers who are like the, the confession says nursing fathers. They're friends to the church. You think of uh, you think of Frederick and Luther. What a help he was to Luther in the Reformation. He was a nursing father to the early uh, Reformation movement. But you think of other kings who set themselves in opposition to the church. You see, those are the possibilities. Rather than being a nursing father, as the confession speaks, seeking the welfare of the church, the tyrant is one who opposes her work. The tyrant is one who sees the kingdom of God advancing in this world through the church and opposes that work. But as a next point, the, the, the focus shifts to Peter in prison now. So we saw that Stephen or, or, or uh, James rather was martyred. Now Peter is imprisoned. And the bulk of the passage has to do with Peter. There he is. He's well, he doesn't have any hope of escape. Luke goes to some detail to tell us. How difficult it would have been for him to escape. He had no human hope of escape. He was awaiting certain death. The only reason he didn't kill him right away was because uh, it was one of the Jewish festivals, the days of unleavened bread, and they could not uh, execute anyone during that time. But the church, as before, is found praying. Verse 5, Peter, therefore, uh, was kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered 
to God for him by the church. Verse 12, uh, many were gathered together praying in Mary's home. Peter is in prison. The church is praying. And that tells us something very important about the church, especially under tyrants. When it seems there is no hope, all the forces are uh, of evil are raised are, are, are arrayed against the church at times like that. What is the church to do? Well, she's to pray. What else can she do? She's to pray. Constant prayer was being offered by the churches when the church knows uh, not what else to do. She is to pray and to pray until her prayers are answered. Not a prayer here or there, but constant prayer. And the amazing thing here is not that their prayer was answered. The amazing thing is that when their prayer was answered, they couldn't believe it. Now, for my part, I'm not surprised. You read the commentaries and they try to explain almost as though embarrassed for these people. How how is it that they were praying for this thing? And then when their prayer was answered, they couldn't believe it. No, I'm not surprised. Doesn't it often work out like that? Do we really believe when we're praying that God answers prayer? Have you ever been surprised when he did? Here we're praying for something and then the thing actually happens. Well, what did we expect? Let us see, beloved, in this passage, just as we see so often in the Christian life, I hope it's your testimony, it's mine. God answers prayer. That's the lesson of providence. That's the lesson of scripture. Yes, often to our surprise. But when he does so, what's he doing? He's encouraging us to go on in the ministry of prayer. To go on with it. To pray without ceasing. And when the next trial should arise, to pray again. I like how John Stott frames the whole episode In essence, it's the struggle between two kingdoms. Which to me, the way he puts this, is the best way to conceive of how the church is to deal with tyrants. He says this. Here then were two communities, the world and the church, arrayed against one another, each wielding an appropriate weapon. On the one side was the authority of Herod, the power of the sword and the security of the prison. On the other side, the church turned to prayer, which is the only power which the powerless possess. Now, here's the question. I have two things to say about that. The the first question or the first comment is a question, and that is, well, who do you think will win? Who do you think will win in such a struggle? It's easy enough, of course, to read the history of the church and say, of course, the church wins. But I wonder if we have that same conviction when it is we who are facing the trials. But the second thing is this Uh, to me. And again, I realize that this is a point of debate among Christians, even within this church. But to me, I find another clear instance, and I am greatly helped by the doctrine of the two kingdoms. And here is the point I wish for you to see, that if tyrants oppose the church, they cannot harm her, nor can they ever succeed in overthrowing her. Whether you're one kingdom or two, I want you to have that conviction about the church. Why? Well, because they belong to another kingdom. They belong to another realm. Tyrants do. The church, we may thank God, does not depend on the state for her survival. And you can read all about that in Acts. You can read all about that in the history of the church. At times, thank God, as in the case of Luther, again, as an example, the church has prospered under under, uh, the care of nursing fathers. Her welfare has been promoted by the state. That is the ideal. 
That's what we should pray for. But the church, let us say, uh, let us see, can fare well enough anywhere, even when the state is opposed to her. Uh, I like how William Still puts it uh, in his little book, The Work of the Pastor. He says, uh, let's see here. He says, churches often thrive when human liberty is jeopardized. He goes on on the next page. We're supposed to believe that there are no conditions on earth in which the Christian church cannot survive. For God will always see to it that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church that is to be. And then he tells the story of how that was true beyond the Iron Curtain. Do not think, he says, that the church is smothered in these countries. She is more likely to be smothered by wealth, ease, and complacency than by persecution. Well, I, for one, am thankful for the doctrine of the two kingdoms because it is, to me, the best answer to the question of tyranny. How is the church to respond to the the tyrant in the state? He is to say, well, you have no say in this kingdom. The church uh, is outside of your lawful authority. We see that Peter was released as we go on with the narrative. As I said, the prayer was answered. He was released in miraculous fashion. He he, he then visited the saints. In answer to the question I asked just a little earlier, who will win? The answer is the church. The, The church scores the first win. But that isn't all. Another thing that we see, and this is part of the answer that the church has given historically, and it is biblical precedent, that in the face of tyranny, it is lawful for a Christian to flee. You see, the question is, must we stay even if it will cost our lives? Well, maybe yes or maybe no. We find that Saul fled. Uh, We find uh, just a little earlier on, we find Peter fleeing here to another town. Uh, Early on in the Reformation, we find we find John Calvin fleeing from France to Geneva. You know, he was a Frenchman. He wasn't from Switzerland. And yet he was fleeing the tyranny of the Roman Catholic Church and the king of France. And so this is another way that Christians have sought to deal with this problem. Though later we find uh, Peter is back in Jerusalem. Let me say this is the last point. And let this be the conviction of every man who calls himself a Christian. And that is that God is able enough to deal with the tyrants of this age in his own way and in his his own timing. In many ways, that's the greatest thing we see here. You ask the question, uh, why, why does Luke go into the details of Herod's demise? Because he wants us to see uh, what it is that God did to him. He wants us to have the confidence, as I say, that God deals with the tyrants of this age. He doesn't just preserve the church, but he deals with the tyrant. How easily. In his own time, God deals with them. And who's the tyrant? Well, here's another answer. Verse 23. The tyrant is someone who does not give glory to God. The tyrant is someone who glorifies himself rather than God. Now, that that man might be a father. He might be a boss. He uh, He might be a preacher. He might be an elder. Or he might be. Uh, The ruler of nations, a man who's given authority by God and uses that authority not to promote the interests of God and of men, but to destroy them and to oppose them. Let us see that not only that such men set themselves against God, but that God sets himself against them, men who will not submit to God. 
And so let me just say this as an aside. And I'll confess, I'm not even sure how to do this, but, well, it's a growing conviction in my heart that the church once again must regain something of her true prophetic voice in condemning the godless rulers of this age. Let us not be afraid to condemn the tyranny of men, even as John the Baptist did in his own day, saying to that other Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And we see it cost him his life because he condemned the lawless deeds of the ruler of his day. These ministers of God, Paul calls them. To them we owe no blind obedience, no more than we owe ministers of the gospel who disobey God. They are to be ministers of God's will to us for good and not for evil. And insofar as they are found wanting, we are to resist them and to defy them. What I am saying is this. A Christian can never obey unjust laws. The unjust laws of the tyrant. For the Christian is someone like the apostle who is subject to God and not to man. And we are to pray beyond that. We are to pray for God to protect us from their fury when they should arise. Or else we should pray for their repentance as we later see Paul doing when he had the opportunity to preach in king's courts. And we are to rejoice to know. That their doom is certain. That every man who sets himself up opposed to God as Herod. God will deal with him in his own way. But do you see the final note? The final note is not Herod's demise. The final note is the church's prosperity in verse 24. But the word of God. It's, it's almost uh, it's a striking contrast. There Herod is being eaten by worms. His downfall was spectacular. But the word of God grew and multiplied. That's the other side of it. Do you see it? Not the tyrant winning, but God winning. Not the tyrant succeeding in the struggle, but God. Not only can God deal with the tyrants of this world, and let us see that, and let us believe that, but he will also always see to the church's growth and the church's prosperity. He will always promote her welfare even when the nursing fathers of this age will not. The thing is absolutely certain. Again, I find what John Stott has to say very helpful in summarizing this point. Indeed, he says, one cannot fail to admire the artistry with which Luke depicts the complete reversal of the church's situation. At the beginning of the chapter, Herod is on the rampage, arresting and persecuting church leaders. At the end, he himself is struck down and dies. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. Such is the power of God to overthrow hostile human plans and to establish his own in their place. Tyrants may be permitted for a time. I think that's the best line of it all. Tyrants may be permitted for a time to boast and bluster, oppressing the church and hindering the spread of the gospel, but they will not last. In the end, their empire will be broken and their pride abased. You see, that's the value of reading all the verses together. That's exactly what Luke is telling us. This glorious reversal that the church must and may look for in times when she is subject to tyrants. But in all that I have said. Let me say one more thing. And that is this. 
Let us remember the opening scene of Acts where Jesus speaks to the apostles and he is taken away from them. He ascends uh, to the father, to the right hand of the father. And, and I said in that sermon, the sermon on the ascension, that I had almost titled that sermon, the church without Christ. But I realized that was no way to speak of it. No, not the church without Christ, but Christ enthroned in heaven. And what is he doing there? What is it that the church is looking for from him as he is enthroned in heaven? What is it that the church experiences? The church experiences his rule and his power and his protection and his loving care. Oh, he'll come again with power even as he left, the angels tell the apostles. But what's he doing in the meantime? Well, he's answering prayer. Don't you see that at the background of everything we read? As they were praying, who were they praying to? They were praying to the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. And he was seeing uh, that their prayers were answered. He heard their prayers and he answered them. To use the language of the shorter catechism, his rule is known in this way, in protecting and preserving his people. And so he brings the church through and out of trials. Or perhaps, as in the case of James or Stephen, he, he leads the Christian on to the martyr's death. And yet he meets with them there. Do you remember how things end at the end of the Stephen uh, narrative as he's martyred? He looks into heaven and he sees Jesus Christ enthroned. And so uh, the church either meets with him in secret prayer and finds her prayers are being answered. Or, or else in a martyr's death. But in either case... It is the ascended Jesus Christ who looks after the church. And my message to you in light of that is that, well, we're to worship him. We're to worship him even as he is enthroned in heaven. We are to adore his majesty. But ultimately, and here's the great test that faces uh, the martyrs and, and the church in every age. We are to trust him. We must trust him to build and establish his kingdom in this world, whatever by whatever means he sees fit, whether by sufferings or in any other way. Amen. And let us sing praise to our exalted Savior by standing together and singing hymn 286 once again back in the Psalter hymnal. Hymn 286.